Welcome back everyone to this episode of the BRFCS podcast. Our guest in part one has roots in East Lancashire, although he found himself at various points living in East Anglia and the south of England, and now finds himself living in France. His website styles him as a comedian, author, columnist, corporate speaker, or many, many, many more things, which we'll get into during the interview. In part two, we have a new contributor to the BRFCS podcast, and that's Brian Light, and he narrates a piece which he wrote for the last edition of the excellent 4,000 Holes fanzine. Brian talks about the relationship between Venkis and the fans. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's press on. The New York Rovers would like to welcome you to the BRFCS.com podcast, covering the 2019-2020 Blackburn Rovers Championship campaign, hosted by Ian Herbert and joined by some very special guests. Don't forget to check out the forum here at BRFCS.com to continue the discussion. So my guest on the podcast today is truly a polymath. His website styles him as a comedian, author, columnist, corporate speaker, blogger and chutney maker. But I think we can also add to that podcaster, hotelier, unofficial animal welfare refuge and last but by no means least a Blackburn Rover supporter. It's our man in France and a very warm welcome to Ian Moore. Hello, Ian. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for joining us, Ian. It's a uh, it's, it's great pleasure to have you on. Uh, which which hats are you wearing today, then? <laughs> Animal welfare, certainly. Uh, when the puppy woke up at half five this morning, demanding attention, uh, and then put the little... I, put, I was going to say, I put the puppy on the bus. Go to the <laughs> my son on Talented the bus. dog, yes. Oh, well, he, he, they learn them. They, they teach them early here. <laughs> uh, and then I did some writing. So I was, I've been an author so far this morning. Author and dad and puppy wrangler. Non-fiction or fiction? This one's fiction. So this follows on from your first book, which was released earlier this year? Yeah, it's a different one. It's a different uh, different style of... It's still a... It's ostensibly still a mystery, a murder mystery, but it's a it's a comedy murder murder mystery. I'm trying to I'm trying to combine <laughs> I'm trying to combine my fiction and non-fiction into one easy lump, so I don't have to do the both. <laughs> so t- tell us about the the first fiction piece then that was released earlier this year. What's the story there? The story with that is um, it's uh, about. Uh, a juge d'instruction is an investigating magistrate um, who's half English and half French, and he's investigating the murder of a retired English teacher in the Loire Valley. And he is, because he's half English and half French, neither the French nor the English like him. And so he's a kind of, it's a typical loner investigator figure. I see. Um, and how, mu- how much of the, uh, neither the English nor the French like him is, is autobiographical? It's <laughs> <I'd> so <say> veering <laughs> in the nervous nineties percent. That's what I'd say. It's 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 an odd thing that you do kind of, you know, the French when I when I'm with the French and they're very lovely and very warm and stuff. But my my French accent is so bad 
that they just always kind of look at you like like a budgerigar looks at a mirror in its cage. They don't understand what's going on or what's coming out of your mouth. And then if you speak a bit of French when you're surrounded by English people, they look at you with distrust as well. So it's, I'm, I'm the worst of both worlds, I think. Marvellous. How have you managed to straddle the two? So uh, I think most of our listeners will, will know you as, and I, I'll use this phrase endearingly, that bloke off fighting talk. And I must admit, that's how I first made the connection that you were a Blackburn Rover supporter when uh, when you were introduced on, on the show. Tell us a little bit about that bloke off fighting talk then, because you you live in France, you were born in the south of England, I'm assuming, with that accent, but yet you have links to East Lancashire. So tell us a little bit about how you came to live in France, uh, and that leads us nicely into, I think, the, the two books, which uh, some of our listeners, I'm sure, will have read. Okay, but first I'll uh, I'll disavow you of where I was born. Okay. Uh, despite despite my, my mockney uh, accent, I, I was born in Blackburn. I was, uh, but I, I lost the accent. <laughs> the, the, the absolute truth with the accent, right? I moved out. Well, I didn't just move out. My family moved out of Blackburn when I was about seven. Okay. And we, we moved to Kings Lynn in East Anglia. Yes. And on my first day at school in Kings Lynn, I got beaten up for having what uh, the locals called a funny accent, which is uh, it takes some gall for people from Norfolk to say anything else <laughs> got funny accent, but that was that was the, that was their picture. Like him who's without sin cast the first stone. Absolutely right, and 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 so within a very short space of time, I developed a Norfolk accent. Okay. And then four years later, we moved down south, and I was beaten up on my first day at school for having a funny accent, uh, and very quickly developed a southern accent. So if I spend anywhere more than about 10 minutes, I'll develop that accent yeah. so that I don't get beaten up, basically. But I am I am Blackburn-born and bred, initially. You're a true Red Rose Lancastrian, then, in that case. True Red Rose Lancastrian. Marvellous. Uh, well, uh, uh, how much of Blackburn do you remember? And have you been back recently? Because I suspect it's changed quite a bit. It, well, it hasn't, it hasn't. You know what I mean? I, the last time I was back there was a couple of years ago. I was doing... Um, I was doing a radio show on a Saturday morning, Steve Royal's radio show for BBC Lancashire on a Saturday morning. I've known Steve for years because he's, he's a he's a fellow comic. And I got the train over from Manchester where I was working to uh, Blackburn and, and walked down from the station and found the BBC studios and was just immediately stuck. Well, this this is the market. This this is the market where we used to go every Saturday morning with my with my dad, actually, yeah. my dad and I would go, and we'd sit in Kenyans for lunch, and we'd have a meat pie and gravy, and we'd overlook the, the Thwaites Brewery, as it was then. I don't know if that is still there. But it struck me that, um, although everything had obviously changed, that particular corner was so resonant from my very, very early childhood that a lot hadn't changed as well, you know. But I haven't been back much, and I, hadn't, uh, it's, uh, I, I always refused to, to gig there. I've been offered many gigs in Blackburn, and I just there's something about bees have a thing. Don't shit on your own doorstep, and I and I, I feel very much that way. I've still got still got lots of family in Blackburn, and and we haven't always got on. So oh, I see. Avoiding the area. So there's a force field around Manchester that sort of lets you play the comedy store there, but you don't you don't get any any closer than that. That's right, yeah. In fact, the last time I did, um, I, I was working in Manchester, not the last time, but I was working in Manchester, and this would have been 1999. Uh, the club had just opened, and I, 
I hired a car and drove over to Blackburn to watch Blackburn lose 2-1 at home to Coventry in the season we were relegated. I thought then, you know, don't 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 hurry back. <laughs> well, I, I must admit, I, I haven't lived in East Lancashire for, oh, cracky, 30, 35 years plus now. Um, but when I go back, I think it, it, you do view it through a different lens. And it, 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 you've still got that affection of it. See, I wasn't born there. I was born in Accrington, but I went to school in Blackburn. And I think, yeah, you, you do still have fond memories, but you can see the way that things have changed. Some for the better, some maybe not quite for the better. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's still home, I guess, in, in many respects, notwithstanding. But home is now France for you. Yeah. So yeah. Um, t- tell us a little bit about what what were the, the forces that made you want to live in France but work in England? And of course, this was in the pre-Brexit days. Yeah, this is when we could. Yes, <laughs> when such when a thing were possible and naive and encouraged. Freedom and rights. This was, this was years ago. Um, well, it was... The absolute catalyst, the bottom line catalyst for this was that we, we just that we could, we simply could. You know, my wife, um, my wife's half French, so her her mum's French, and we'd be coming to this area of France on holiday um, for years. You know, I first came here with with my girlfriend, now my wife, in 1990, and oh. just fell in love with the area. Just absolutely adored the area, and and I remember sitting in in the garden of my my parents-in-law's place in 1990 just saying right what I'm going to do is I'm going to retire here and write light undemanding comic novels and that's that was that was always my intention but that to retire was the thing we never thought that you know we could just do it but we could and then we'd like I said we come here every every year on holiday and you walk past the estate agents and you see the ridiculous prices of of property over here compared to we were living in in Crawley in Crawley, for heaven's sakes. I mean, if you ever want a spur to emigration, go and live in Crawley for a few years. And, and we, we just thought, well, why not? Why not give it a go, you know? Because also budget airline travel then was was proper budget. And also it was um, it was every day. The, the Ryanair timetable from the local airport was every day. So it was never going to be an issue. Presumably most of your work that time will be in and around London. So. Well, the UK, yeah. all over the UK, certainly, yeah. Oh, okay, right, so you, you still travelled around the UK. So what was the catalyst that made you write the first book? Because that's how I, I, I first re- read your written word, and I say I downloaded the two, I remember, on the Kindle as holiday reading, and it was one of those things where around the pool I started with a low chuckle, then it became a more resonant chuckle, then it got to the my wife tapping me on the arm and saying, you do realise you're laughing out loud. They, they are <laughs> tremendous, tremendous reads. So what was it that first prompted you to, to commit your thoughts to paper, as it were? That's really kind of it, and, and it's, it's very gratifying because I think initially what happened, the, the way it came about was just a, 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 an innate sense of frustration. I couldn't, I couldn't cope with the world that I'd created <laughs> and, and needed some kind of outlet for my angry frustration in, in a way that, that I that you know the, the whole premise of of moving to France was the peace and quiet and the tranquility and the pace of life and yet within about four or five years between us we'd created this 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 circus this animal circus and where I was just almost just one of the animals I was kind of a pack horse for the family and I needed I needed to get it off my chest so it was very much written by your spleen then it was very much, and I remember I was actually on a Ryanair flight writing, writing it. So you can imagine how angry I was at the time. That was <laughs> 
that I wrote it and I put it on Facebook as just a no, uh, just this sort of this ranting post <laughs> update. And somebody somebody wrote to me. Um, somebody got back to me and said, "Oh, this is very funny. You should do this regularly. And then, you know, if you've got the material, they finish with. Have I got the material? <laughs> this happens every day." Um, and from then, I, I did a blog, and then the blog was um, picked up by a publisher who approached me and said, "You know, can we can we publish these as, as books?" And and it just kind of went for just getting up one morning, being really angry with the world and needing to write it down, and it's uh, it's, it's worked. I would say I, so. It, the, the book wasn't the end in itself. The end in itself was the cathartic sort of getting it off your chest. And absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and it hasn't worked. <laughs> well just as well else you'd be short of material i guess absolutely well i restarted the the i did a brexit blog for a while and that just became just a, a never-ending circle of madness so so i stopped the brexit blogs when um when my french nationality came through yeah and then i restarted the the my life my life as a circus blogs um in the summer and uh, and uh, and again, it is cathartic. It, it, it actually is, you know. And and keeping note. It's also. Do you know what? It's been really good. Is that um, the couple of times because uh, you know, my wife and I are knocking on. Right, we can't always remember what happened in what order. And a couple of times, this is such a. It sounds like such a middle class thing to say. So why don't you go and check your memoir and see where we were? <laughs> <laughs> Because we can't remember anything. Do you know, I found, uh, to echoing that point, as the years go by, something only happened if I took photographs of it. And, of course, in the digital age, uh, and with the ease of which you can take photographs and store them and record them and search for them and all that sort of stuff, everything pre, I think it was 2003 or something, I got my first digital camera, doesn't really happen because it's in albums in the loft. Yes, and, and therefore, yeah, they'll come down. What once every three or four years, and you look. Oh yeah, we went there, didn't we? Oh yeah, yeah, we did that, didn't we? Oh, that was good, wasn't it? But it takes up a, a tiny amount of your memory, where whereas everything that you can just reference on your digital phot- photographs, it, it, it bec- that becomes your life. Absolutely, and it's. The, th- this is your life these days, I think, would just be a sort of like a photo gallery. There'd be no need for a presenter. They'd just show a photograph. Someone would come on and wave to the photograph and, and then disappear again. Yes, a sliding Instagram. Yes, yes. <laughs> no need to actually get people in the same room. So uh, you, you touched on it there, Ian. You are now a French national. Yes. So um, how has that impacted upon how people receive you and, and the way that you think and, and, and the way that you feel? So do, would you pass the Tebbit test if France play England at football, for instance? <laughs> That's a, do you know what? That's really interesting. I wouldn't. I wouldn't pass the Tebbit test at all. But ironically, my kids who were born in France would. It's because they're, they're quite my, – my son, my middle son – I've got three sons. My middle son this last week started – at a new college, uh, which is a special um, football college, it's an elite football college, and even though he was born and, and has grown up in France, and all his footballing education has been French, he still turned up to this dormitory that he's sleeping in, wearing an England football kit. Oh, One can no. only imagine how rough his first few nights were. But, but I, I would pass the Tebbit's test. I, in fact, no, I'd fail the Tebbit's test because I'm actually supporting England in France. It's a very odd. It's a very odd test, anyway. That, but it um, it hasn't really impacted on me, in, except that I felt like um, I felt like a spy 
the first time that I used my my French passport. It felt it felt really, it felt very odd. Well, you, you touched on that in one of the blogs where you, you where you say you found yourself pronouncing Paris not as Paris but as Paris. You kind of live up to the expectations <laughs> of what you expect, you know. And and um, this 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 security guard at Manchester Airport, where have you come from? <laughs> and he's looking at me like, mate, you're not French. Yeah, look at, looking at the name, looking at the photo, and listening to the accent, and trying to compute the differences between the three. So, how many stripy pullovers do you wear on average during the week? I've got a couple of stripy pullovers, and there's always a string of onions just in case, just well, in case my credentials are questioned. Naturally, naturally enough. So, yeah, you, not only are you French and living in France, but you're now welcoming people to the country because you you've opened up a B and B. So, to what extent yeah. is Faulty Towers a documentary versus a sitcom? It's it's real politics. That's what it is. It's 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 fly on the wall. It's it's it, it, where this came from was again. It's Brexit related insofar as um, I needed to be in the system over here financially because as as it was, um, all the comedy and all the the books were all um, revenue from the UK. Right, and if uh, if we leave with no deal and British government treats European um, migrants to the UK as they've said they're going to do, then if that's reciprocated in France, I won't be earning in France. And I will, without if, if I hadn't got French nationality, I potentially our family could be split up. Right. So it became um, it became a case of having to be in the system over here and also not travelling as much. I I've been I've been commuting between rural France and the UK for 15 years. We've been here for 15 years, and I've been doing that commute almost every week for 15 years, and I am broken. (laughs) 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 Utterly broken. My body cannot tolerate this anymore, so I can't travel as much as I used to travel. So it it was part of it also was that I'd be able to stay here more regularly than than I do, you know. And how how successful has it been doing the B&B? Can I be honest? It is far too successful for my liking it i'm I'm knackered absolutely knackered it's it's um we didn't we didn't think it would be as successful as this but we live we live within 20 minutes of what's called the one of the top five zoos in the world yeah this zoo has its own tv series on french television so it's enormously popular this zoo which means that whenever we're open we're full basically fantastic it is. It However, is. I really shouldn't moan about that, should I? But it's, uh, no, I was expecting some time off this summer. I don't normally work in the summer at all. I just normally sit down and, and contemplate, you know, how how angry I could be in my next blog or something like that. But no, it's been it's been full on, absolutely full on. I've seen the photographs, obviously, on your website. Uh, I must admit, I would quite like to visit one day. But based on what you've just said, we'd better book for twenty twenty two or something like that. <laughs> People are already booking up for next year. It's crazy. I, it's you know, it's 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 nuts. And it's, I mean, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. But again, you find yourself living, living this kind of bizarre life. Do you, you know what I mean? In, in that I, I'll give you an example. That last Saturday, um, I got up very early. We were full, so I did breakfast for nine people last Saturday morning. Uh, and then as they left, I got all the rooms cleaned um, and, and new bedding on and all of that. Typical, this is what you do if you run a B&B stuff. Yeah. 
I had to leave at half 11, drive up to Paris, catch a flight to Nice, where I was picked up in a stretch limousine with my name, this behatted chauffeur picking me up in Nice airport, taking me to a private gig. So the two worlds completely collided in one day. And I was just sitting in this bar in the Hotel Martinez in Cannes, this five-star bar at two o'clock on Sunday morning going, what the hell just happened there? <laughs> Which is great. They're both great. But the, when the worlds collide like that, you just, you just sit back and go, this is, this is crazy. Well, one of your blogs earlier uh, in the summer talked about um, taking a potential sitcom script to a producer and a producer saying it's not very realistic this how, how much have you left out <laughs> i just i when i got that back i, I just you get I, I, anger seems to be a recurring thing just constant irritation but yeah somebody when you write that this this is my life i don't make anything up i, I you know i leave some stuff out but everything is is absolutely true and spot on and then for a tv producer to go well, it's not realistic you can't make that <laughs> That's my bloody life, mate. You know. <laughs> Fact often is, is more extreme than fiction. Certainly, that seems seems to be the case. So, in terms of the next few years, then, what, what do you see? The, all those hats that I talked about earlier, which one do you see yourself focusing on? Is it going to be largely around B and B with some um, podcasting and some extra blogs, or what? What, what else hope- does Ian Moore want to do, basically? <laughs> Well, I want to set up a string of B and Bs. No, I um, I don't honestly know. It, things things change so rapidly uh, at the moment that you, that whatever whatever you think you might you might be doing d- never really tends to work out. You know, I mean, I only decided to do the podcast a week before I started doing the podcast. You know, I think what I'd like, what I'd really like to do is, is the books. I mean, that's my favourite thing to do is to get up in the morning and write that's what i enjoy doing yeah so um to get more books published that's 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 my aim really fiction Actually, and non-fiction or staying well, just on the fiction fiction but i mean if if non-fiction non-fiction the the blogs and and stuff which which have always formed the non-fiction books that's a kind of um like i said that's a release and i do that because i, I enjoy doing it and and uh, and it, and it kind of keeps me sane in a peculiar way um, so if any more books come about by that, that's absolutely fine. But it's the fiction side that I really want to, I really want to conquer because yeah. there's a kind of any books really, to be perfectly honest with you, I'll, I'll, I'll say that because when I'm away working, um, this always happens in Manchester because I don't always, I like Manchester a lot. It's very, it's, it's got its very own idiosyncratic character as Manchester, but being a southerner in Manchester is sometimes a little bit harder because there was one time I walked on stage at Manchester Comedy Store and the entire and all I said was hello how are you right and the entire front row of lads stood up and started shuffling out and I was and really polite about it not aggressive in any way and I said where are you going and all I said is hello how are you and this bloke just went, yeah, it's no offence, mate. It's just your accent. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 
I find I find quite you know staying in hotels for three or four days I find quite difficult and one of the things that kind of keeps you going in a really sad J.R. Hartley way is going into Waterstones and seeing your books on the <laughs> yeah, I presume you shuffle them and you bring them to the oh, front and yeah, I marketing I move them all over the place <laughs> yes I think I think every author I think I've ever seen has tweeted or written about that does exactly the same goes in so I'll just bring that to the front and just make, make that the feature book of the week <laughs> Do you ever feel like when you're playing in Manchester and have laminating your birth certificate there and sort of look, I'm actually born from 20 miles away? Well, I, that, <laughs> I have said that in Manchester before. I've been on, somebody's said something about the accent and it always has to be done. And you, so you stand there on Manchester Comedy Store stage in front of 450 people and go, no, look, I was born in Blackburn and I now live in France. I'm not, I'm not Southern. And then they just look at you and go, right. So you were born in Blackburn, you got a southern accent, and now you've pissed off the front. <laughs> You're not making yourself more popular. <laughs> you can't win sometimes. God bless him. God bless him. I've been to the comedy store in Manchester a few times. I have to say, I think I, think I know exactly the people that you're describing, Just So in terms of your, your, your football supporting, then, let's just, let's just clo- close on that, then. How, how easy is it to, to follow football? How, how, how much do you get to see live or on screen from france and how much pressure are you under from your boys not to watch some championship rubbish when there's premier league football as an option? <laughs> i don't get it if blackburn are playing i don't get any i don't get to watch it at all because if there's any kind of premier league match on then then that takes priority i've got three sons uh, the eldest was born in in england and the other two were born in france and the eldest supports man united the middle son supports chelsea and my youngest supports arsenal oh dear it's it's a, it's an I I hold my hands up and admit to it being an utter failure as a parent and and that has turned out that way. And, and what I find worse about that is that, I mean I don't mind I don't mind glory hunters per se because there was that period just after Blackburn won the Premier League yeah. when you'd go to towns in in southern England and there'd be kids wearing Blackburn football shirts. Yes, inevitably. Yeah. You just knew, oh, you were, you're not going to be wearing that for long, pal. You know, you're <laughs> period in your childhood memories. That won't last. So I don't I don't mind that. But it's, it's just kind of, it's the pity that I get from my kids that annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> there, is, there is no upland here. Do, no they, do, do they not consider Blackburn to be their second team or is that an alien concept? Not at all. They, they mock me mercilessly. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the only thing worse is if they'd grown up as Burnley supporters. But uh... oh, that's that's even worse. That's they're very aggressive Burnley supporters. I once did fighting talk with Alistair Campbell. Oh yes, and and he's an aggressive man at the best of times. <laughs> but he's strident. Tweeting. <laughs> for, he was. Yeah, that's one way of describing him. <laughs> he, he started tweeting from about an hour and a half before he'd even got to the studio about who's this Blackburn supporter that I'm going to be wading into later on. And, oh, man, he was very aggressive. Very. <laughs> so what's, what's, the, um, what's the best stand-up gig that you've ever done and, and what's, what's the worst experience that you've ever had as a stand-up? The best stand-up gig I've ever done? I, do you know what? I don't... Probably, probably the Just for Laughs Montreal Festival. Because it just, I was, I, I, it just felt like I was on top of the world. It felt like you could never go anywhere else, and and it, you know all the industry were there, and 
all the uh, all the top comics. You you know, I mean, uh, obviously he's he's not as successful as he used to be. But Bill Cosby closed the car. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite uh, a moment. Um, that felt great. That felt just you know, like I said, on on top of the world. But it's I can't think of the worst one. The worst. I mean, there's been many, many, many dark moments <laughs> <laughs> so really bleak times but I tell you, you do you do try and put them out of your mind after a while I think you, you'd have to to, to be to go on stage the next time if you took it so so personally yeah. I mean there was there was a time once in East London where some guy pulled a gun okay on, I was on stage and it turned out not to be a real gun it turned out to be a fake gun but I didn't know it was a fake gun <laughs> Then when it became obvious that it was a fake gun, there was another table of blokes on the other side, on the corner of the stage, who started having a go at me for not dealing with the guy with the gun <laughs> in a particularly funny manner. And so it all descended into chaos. And I walked off the stage and, and had to be escorted to my car in the car park because these other blokes who, who were annoyed about me not dealing with the gun incident were following me to my car. Oh, my God. So, that kind of thing. That kind of thing. That sounds like the worst episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway? I think anybody's ever seen. It was, it was quite. It was quite terrifying. And and I had another gig to do that night. And I think if I hadn't had another gig to do that night, I probably. I'm not sure I'd have gone back. I'm not sure I'd have gone back because it, it really. It really threw me, you know. It really, threw me. you don't expect you don't expect firearms. Not exactly. No. And the most unusual um, corporate gig. Most unusual corporate gigs. There's been quite a few of them. There was one where um, some chief executives from Harley Davidson wanted a comedian, but in their room. They were having like a meal in their room. And there was only about four or five of them. And, and they, they booked me to do it. And it was like, <laughs> I, felt, I, felt, I felt more like an escort girl than a comedian. You need a better Just, agent, I think. <laughs> It just felt bit Harley. I'm a mod. I'm not even a biker or anything like that. It, 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 it had the whiff more of an assassination attempt than an actual kick. But it went, mind, yeah. it went perfectly fine. But it, yeah, very odd. Very odd indeed. <laughs> Excellent. So, what do, what does the rest of year of the year have uh, in store for you, Ian? Well, from next week, I'm back on the road. I'm back on the road um, doing comedy uh, up until Christmas, and then. Um, taking a bit of time off finishing this book i've got a deadline to finish this this book by the end of october more blogs more podcasts and then i'm i've booked myself a holiday for january which i'm really i'm really pleased about i am really pleased with it i'm going i'm just going to new york on my own for for four nights that's a marvelous city yeah yeah i've never been i've never been before and i've always i've always wanted to go to new york um there is a branch of the Rovers Supporters Club over there, the, the New York City Rovers, and they are terrific guys. They've they've come over to Ewood. I've met them a couple of times in the UK. I'm sure that if you if you need any inside track, if you if you contact them on Twitter, they'll be they'll be delighted to uh, to provide you with advice. It'd be great if Blackburn were playing as well. It was actually on television. Well, they all meet. Um, they meet in a bar. Uh, I think it's underneath the Empire State Building, um, and the, because of the the I Follow uh, player. 
you can you yeah. can now watch any game live. So I think I, whether whether they take their own computer in or whatever, or they persuade the guy to show it, because obviously the yeah. timing they're they're usually early on a Saturday morning, that kind of thing. But there's lots and lots of New York based fan groups, and they all meet in this particular bar, and there's signed shirts on the wall and things like that. And um, Alan Shearer was over in New York last year, and they persuaded him to go down, and he he met them. And there's, there's photographs of them meeting him. It was it looks an amazing place. I must admit, last time I was there, it was during the week. We didn't we weren't there straddling a weekend, so I wasn't able to see it. But next time I go, I definitely want to meet it with the guys. But they are, they are terrific. I'm sure they'd be extremely helpful. I think they'll take that out. I think that's, I'm gonna, obviously I'm going to the Empire State Building anyway, so I'll definitely go. Yeah. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they'll, they'll give you the details. Well, look, Ian, thank you so much for giving up your time. It's been it's been lovely chatting. I could carry on for hours, but I, I know you've got well guests to look after, books to write, <laughs> podcasts to record, Chutney to make. We haven't even to- talked about Chutney yet. Have we? Well, I've moved on from Chutney. Oh, have I've you? Moved, I've moved on from Chutney because nobody wants Chutney for breakfast. That's what. That's what you find <laughs> out very quickly. I'm, I'm now in the jam business. Ah, well, yeah, the, the perfect Brexit business, apparently, so you're ahead of the curve once again. I'll, I'll pull the country back, don't worry. Good man, good man. Thank you so much for chatting to us, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I hope everything goes well with the B&B and the books and, and well, everything that you're doing, basically. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll chat again at some point in the future. Thanks, Ian. Cheers, Ian. Thanks very much. When I look at our club now compared to five years ago, a lot of things have changed and it got me thinking about how we continue to progress. I think most will agree that Mowbray has done a great job so far and is given credit for steadying the ship and giving fans something to be proud of again. That said, he still has a very difficult task due to the financial fair play rules and their impact upon the club's finances. Given the rules as they apply to the championship, the attendances at Ewood are not helping. When I think of the running of a club, there are several pivotal factors that determine the success. You need ambitious owners, a good manager who is supported, a squad that will give all for the badge, and then most importantly, us, the fans. Now, Venkis have been absent for a while, and we are all fully aware of their impact when they first took over. But over the last couple of years, I feel that they have learned from their mistakes and are making efforts to improve our club. Mowbray seems to have their backing and has a vision of where he wants to take us. And for the first time in years, we have a squad who want to be with us and will give everything for us. Yes, even on those bad days we all like to moan about. That just leaves us, the fans. While I totally understand why so many people stopped attending games, I'm finding it harder and harder to justify those fans' reasoning for staying away. Attendances are comparably low for some teams in the championship, and this has the obvious knock-on effect on finances, especially taking into consideration the FFP regulations, and it limits what we can do in terms of bringing in players due to wage constraint. Now before some get too mad, I'm not saying I'd expect to see attendances to match that of our Premier League days. But I do wonder what kind of impact could be made if we could increase our attendances by three to five thousand people per match. I don't know the inner workings of Rovers, 
but surely that sort of increase could see our wage budget increase by somewhere in the region of £1.1 million per year. And that's a very conservative estimate. And that sort of money could bring in some additional talent that would help us push on again. Maybe getting a three, an additional three to 5,000 people for each match is optimistic, but I don't see why this couldn't be done, considering this is not even half the number of fans who stopped attending from Premier League days. So how do we get fans through the turnstiles? I'm not suggesting that we forgive and we forget what happened when Venkis first took over the club, but they have kept us afloat and improvements in their management of the club are there for people to see. I'm at a stage where I'm starting to forgive them for those many, many errors in what felt like years and years of watching the club I love being ripped apart and destroyed from the inside. We have, however, witnessed many other clubs experience similar problems with owners, and only Venkis have been able to buck the trend of threats of administration or going out of business. And that is something we should consider when deciding if we should forgive. I'm not, however, willing to forget what they did in those first years of ownership, but we may never be in a position to fully forgive what happened if it is now us, the fans, restricting the ambitions of the manager and the owners. So I hate to say it, but I think we now find ourselves in a position where we need some fans to get over it or take a chance and invest in those season tickets to see what we are capable with the associated additional revenue. More importantly, I think this would be a massive boost to our players. If they can see more fans attending, it will give them the feeling we are really heading in the right direction and further bond the players together and also to the fans. Not to mention the fact the higher attendances could be a deciding factor in whether or not a potential transfer target wants to join the club. For example, if a player has two offers, but one club is getting attendances that are noticeably higher than the other, who are they more likely to sign for? I know those who gave up season tickets will read this and think, why should I pay attention to it? Well, I've been through the fixtures and my calendar already this season, and I have the possibility of getting to six games as a maximum, and I intend to make the five hour round trip to be there every chance I get. I've also made contact with friends about getting them on board with, for coming with me. It might not seem much, but considering I made no games last season and only one game the season before, I'm trying to do my little bit as I do now believe we are in danger of letting our club down. And I want to urge all of you to do the same and join me and get into as many games as possible, preferably with a positive attitude and accompanied by at least one friend. But we are all Rovers fans. If as a fan base we can't start to believe in our team again, why should anybody else? So there we have it. Thanks once again to our very special guest, Ian Moore, for giving up his time and contributing to our podcast. It's uh, tremendously appreciated. If you want to know more about Ian's books, podcasts, blog, or you fancy staying in his B&B, which is absolutely amazing if you see the photos, go to ianmoore.info for more information. And of course, a very special thank you to Brian Light for giving us a contribution to the podcast. Uh, we're always open for suggestions for our items for the podcast. So if you've got any ideas that you'd like to record for the podcast, then drop us a line on the forum or send us a PM or give us a contact on Twitter. Any of those will do. 
Thanks, of course, lastly to the guys from The Symmetry for providing all the incidental music in this episode. We'll see you again soon. Blah, 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 blah. And we arranged to do this thing, and he's just disappeared. Okay, well, I feel good for at least turning up on time. Yeah, I'm very grateful you're here. It's been a little more. <laughs> you might have been developing a complex if we weren't careful. <laughs>